Mac Power Users, Episode 589, Zoom Jiu-Jitsu with Teddy Sferonos. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks. I am joined today by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hello, David. How are you? I am fantastic, man. Have you spent the last seven days at Disneyland? Uh, I've been there twice now, which has been fun and, uh, having a good time. I mean, the problem is they don't have passes now and, um, they, they had a thing. I I know listeners don't want to hear this, but my wife earned a bunch of free tickets as an employee and we're putting that to use now, but the, um, but at some point I'm going to have to start paying to go and that's not going to be any fun. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, we are having fun, and it's cool uh, being somewhat normal, even though you're masked up and social distancing and everything. It it really uh, struck me as I was there that um, this is something I haven't done for a long time, and it's something we all enjoy doing together. And, of course, the first thing I did was get myself a corn dog. So there you go. (laughs) Little Red Wagon, guys. That's the the best corn dog in the world. You just got to get inside Disneyland to get it. Uh, but we have a guest here, one of my favorite guests of the show, um, Teddy. Uh, Teddy's thrown us. Welcome back to the Mac Power Users. Thank you very much, David. Great to be here. Uh, Teddy is a professor at a, a little college. Nobody's ever heard of it, but it's called Harvard University, and uh, he te- teaches at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, more importantly, he is a shredding jazz guitarist. I will say that for you. <laughs> But Thanks, I'm David. not going to talk about that on the show today. I don't want to make Stephen mad at me. But, uh, you know, you are an amazing guitarist. But but he's a professor. And even preparing for the show today, Teddy was talking about things like pedagogy. And I'm thinking, man, we are classing this thing up today. We are classing up the Mac Barry. <laughs> and uh, Teddy is a, is a nerd. And he does a lot of really cool stuff with technology, not only teaching his kids, uh, we're going to talk about that today. Uh, he's really uh, interested in the idea of contextual computing. He's got some cool thoughts and workflows for that. And um, also, Teddy, you, um, I understand we're told by the powers that be at your at your employer, hey, you understand this geek stuff. We have a bunch of people here that don't understand it. Can you please come up with a program for teaching students remotely? And uh, you did a bunch of work on that as well. Yeah, so around... I guess the end of May of last year, when we had switched to remote teaching for the second half of the semester, uh, it became clear that we were probably going to be teaching remotely for the coming year. And so I was tasked along with a couple of other colleagues with figuring out how to get everyone to transition from whatever they were doing in the classroom to doing it online, which was, you know, a pretty sizable investment of time and energy. But it ended up being really uh, beneficial to me in terms of just learning how different people teach and also, I think, uh, streamlining how I think about the use of tech in these kinds of remote learning contexts. And I think uh, a lot of the stuff we've got in the outline today, I think is going to work no matter what you do, whether you're teaching or reporting to work remotely. And, um, and honestly, gang, I think the, the zoom call is not going away. Even if we can get past COVID, I feel like the, the, um, the Pandora's box has been opened and we are all stuck with zoom calls for a while. Before we get started, though, Teddy, it has been several years since you've been on the show, and I'm always curious to hear uh, what hardware you're using. So where have you gone these days with Apple hardware? 
Oh, man. So um, I continue to be a very heavy user of my iPad, as I have been for many years. But my computer setup has gone from, it went from an Intel MacBook Pro 13-inch, which was pretty souped up. And yet pretty early in the pandemic, I realized that it just could not handle Zoom and all the stuff I was doing at the same time. The fans were exploding immediately. It was just absolutely unusable. So I switched back to my 2016 iMac, which was handling Zoom better than like a 2019 MacBook Pro, which was very frustrating. Well, bigger, bigger fans, right? And more ventilation. And so then when the M1s got announced, I was a little skeptical, but I got one and just everything immediately worked extremely well. So now I've got my M1 13-inch MacBook Pro hooked up to my 5K LG monitor, and it has been everything has been incredibly smooth and quiet. And I just kind of can't believe how good these processors work. Yeah, I mean, I almost want to talk about the M1 on every episode of Mac Power Users. <laughs> I think we we have a pretty good run of that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just you know, several months in, it still gets like crazy all day iPad like battery life, and mm-hmm. it still doesn't get hot or make noise. I just you know, it's easy to start taking it for granted, but once in a while I stop and look at this computer and say, wow, this is, this happened, you know? Totally. I mean, it was, it was a weird thing that happened. So before everything was on Zoom, when people asked me what kind of computer to get, I would say, you know, get the compute, the form factor that you like, try to get RAM if you can, don't really worry about like splurging on the processor because they weren't doing stuff that required that much processor intensive stuff. And when everyone switched to Zoom, suddenly they had this incredibly power hungry application that was running while trying to do a bunch of other stuff where any kind of failure was like hugely problematic. And then suddenly I kind of couldn't recommend these computers anymore. And I was suggesting iMacs to people because I just didn't know what else to do. And now I'm back to being able to say, pick an Air or a Pro and just get that computer and you'll be fine. Yeah. The, the longer we get away from from that time period, like the more obviously painful it is to, <laughs> to consider like the, the self-own Apple had with its notebooks. but. You know, you look at Mac sales the last several quarters all rising. People are excited about this new stuff. And I bet there are a bunch of people who feel like you do. Like, yeah, man, there's a bunch of really good laptops you can go get. But this M1 MacBook Air is head of the pack. Totally. Are you going to get the upgrade fever when they announce a MacBook Pro? I don't I don't think so. I think I think that this is so I'm, I'm much more excited by iPads than Macs. I'm super excited about this M1 iPad, provided that they actually announce cool stuff in the upcoming WWDC that'll actually like give it the kind of capabilities I think it needs. So I'm more eyeing that than I am the new redesigned MacBook Pros. You know how your kids, um, well, you don't have any kids, right? But um, Stephen, you know how when your kids will like tell you something in front of other people so they don't get in as much trouble? Right. I have to tell something to Steven that I've been meaning oh. to tell him. <laughs> oh, no. I'm the kid in this scenario, yeah? Yeah, you're here to protect me. Um, right. So I ordered no. an iPad Pro. I told you guys I was going to do that. Mm-hmm. But I got the white one with a white keyboard. That's all I'm going to say. Do you live in some sort of clean surgical suite? <laughs> like, that thing is going to look... I'm not saying you're dirty. I'm just saying a white a white keyboard and white case is a bad idea. Yeah, I just, I thought, you know what? Why not? Why not? So it's here we be go. Great. Yeah. For a second, I, I was afraid you had bought an iMac. That's really where no, I no, thought no. we were going. <laughs> no, no, no. But you can see how I would get there. Yeah, yeah. The after show today, um, 
I had some serious struggles with a Mac Mini over the weekend, and I'll I'll explain. I'll, no, no, you guys don't want to hear the the sad story right now, but the uh, yeah, but I I did not go rage buy a computer, but I did I did order the white one, and I I I was a little afraid to tell you to be perfectly honest. Did you get the big RAM one? No. Well, I got the um. Well, no, you know what? I did get the big RAM one. I did. I ordered the. I didn't get the full two terabyte. I got the mm-hmm. one terabyte, but. I don't know. Anyway, um, so you've got a new iPad on the way. That's exciting. Yeah, very excited about it. What, now, what do you think the the new processor will give you that you're not kidding with the existing? This is the thing, and this is the same with getting the bigger RAM. Like, I, it's it's Apple has succeeded very much as a company in that I am like proactively buying a very expensive thing in hopes that there will be stuff that they announce that makes a lot of really good use of it that I didn't have before. The thing I'm most excited about is I said I had a 5K LG display and I can't plug my iPad into it at all. And I like yeah. using external apps that have external display support like GoodNotes and MindNote and stuff. And I'm excited to be able to just plug it into my 5K display instead of having to do this weird AirPlay stuff before. You know, having that having that Thunderbolt compatibility will be cool. Yeah, the, the thing I realized during the pandemic is that I really like the big iPad. You know, and that's the only one I've been using since this all started. So I guess that's what mm-hmm. I'll be doing going forward. There you go. Um, all right. Uh, you, are you still on the current phone or which iPhone are you on? I'm on that upgrade program. So I am on the 12 Pro, um, which I quite like. And my wa- I, everything is with the new stuff. I have the newer Apple Watch. The Apple Watch has been like a really big part of my of my life like a couple of years ago i got really into maybe like two three years ago i started getting into triathlons as a thing that i could do yeah and so i've been using my watch a ton to like track everything and get everything going with that so the watch phone combo i've been using mostly for fitness stuff and how's the watch around battery life for triathlon i know that was an issue with some of the earlier watches because that's such a an extended workout yeah, I mean, it's not, so the tries that I do, the distance isn't like a full Ironman, which tend to be like, you know, 14 hours long. Um, these tend to be more like six and it works okay. It's nothing like, you know, people with dedicated triathlon watches like Garmin's and stuff, those can last for a couple weeks, but this, so this is limited in that respect, but it's been close enough and I'm kind of hoping that they, that they end up doing more to sort of make it a little bit more uh, energy efficient for workout stuff, but I haven't had any trouble yet with battery running out. Yeah, to me, that would be like a feature because I'd be like doing a triathlon and say, oh, guys, I got to stop for an hour and uh, and charge my watch. <laughs> there oh, you go. You, I'll catch up. Don't don't wait up for me. Yeah, there's this cool this guy, Ian Blackburn. He does he has he does Ironmans with um, his Apple Watch. And I think for a while he had two. He would like use one for a while. And then when it ran out, he would switch to the second one for the last leg of his workout. Wow. Now, are you a, a big user of the uh, the lte data on the watch like when you're out running or is your phone always with you no so i i I was so excited to ditch my phone so i only i I always leave my phone at home and i have lte on my watch which i use to stream stuff and most importantly i used to just have my location broadcasted to my partner which i think is super helpful for us so yeah i'm a huge user of, of the lte um and i don't i just don't take my phone with me at all now, uh, we, we talked about the iPhone real quickly, but we, since you were last on, Apple added these widgets. Have you gone in for that, uh, for your home screen? Oh, yeah. Let me just take a look at it right now. So I've got 
my main screen, I've got calendar, uh, weather, things, and photos. And behind each, I have a shortcut that I associate with it. So I have like a things quick entry shortcut that I put right behind that things widget. And same for calendar. I have a time for class shortcut that like puts everything on do not disturb and imports my reminders from a spreadsheet so that it can like let me know when to proceed to the next part of class and all this kind of cool stuff. I like keep those behind each widget as like a, a quick accessible thing, which is cool. That is a really good idea. Putting like associated widgets behind, you know, associated shortcuts behind a widget. So like if you do a lot of stuff with your calendar, you could make a calendar widget screen or widget, a calendar shortcut widget and just put it behind the calendar. So you just swipe up and you've got them behind the calendar. I like that idea. Yeah, it's awesome. It really, and I've got another one behind my weather widget, which basically like tells me a bunch of stuff about the weather and then launches a website that tells you what to wear when you run a different conditions. So I can like easily figure out what the best thing to do is stuff like that. It's really nice to have just like a single useful shortcut behind your widget that you could just easily flip to when you need to. Steven, are you still using widgets at this point or are you, uh, are you I back am. to app icons? Yeah, no, I am. Uh, I feel like it's sort of settled out for me where the ones I was using, I think last time we checked in, they haven't really changed. One thing I'm I'm hoping for, I know this is not sort of the topic today, but I really want these widgets to become interactive in iOS 15. So you can yeah. check things off a to-do list or scroll through your calendar a little bit in the widget. It, it's nice that they show information and they work really well given their limitations, but it's a little frustrating sometimes that tapping them basically just opens an app. And some even like I can't even like they don't even update often enough. Right. So like you're looking at old information sometimes. Mm-hmm. But uh, thinking about Teddy, I would assume that uh, something you would want is widgets all over your iPad. Oh, my God. I mean, I saw there was like some leak that something like that was going to happen. And I cannot like my iPad home screen is basically nothing right now. Like I have everything I need in the dock because I want to multitask. And so the the home page is just like a bunch of apps that aren't really in any particular order. So the idea of being able to have like glanceable, actionable information on the home screen is just, I really can't wait. Yeah. I I feel like if we don't get that with uh, the next iOS, you know, if we don't get it in June, I am going to be supremely disappointed because it seems so obvious. Absolutely. I mean that, and this for me, just based on the kind of work that I do, I think if iPad doesn't get better files app stuff, in the coming year, I'm going to be extremely bothered as well because I, I end up using Dropbox a lot because of colleagues using Dropbox and files integration with Dropbox is so sporadic. It's just like, I don't know what I'm doing, like using this super nice device that can't even sync my files correctly, you know? I'm hearing from a lot of listeners that are like emailing me talking about how they were all in with iPad and they're just, you know, slowly losing enthusiasm at the same time that the laptops are getting 20 hour batteries and a lot of the features of the iPad that, you know, historically weren't on a laptop and, you know, the iPad is losing people because of that. I think it really is. I like, I mean, the M one, the shift with the M one totally changed the frequency with which I used my laptop. Suddenly I'm taking my laptop, like sitting on the couch and doing emails and stuff in a way that I was using my iPad for previously. So, you know, the, the ball is certainly in their court with respect to software updates on the iPad. And on the widget thing, I know this is not a rumor show, but in addition to wanting widgets all over my iPad screen, I would also like them all over my desktop on my Mac. Yep. I mean, why not? 
I'm thinking back now to the when I used to, you know, when the dashboard used to exist and I would use some hack to make dashboards show up on my on my desktop in like, yeah, I think you know, line like a or terminal something. command or something. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. yeah. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by one password. We all know one password is the place to create and use and access strong, unique passwords, all safe and sound across all of your devices. But you can save a lot of other types of information as well in 1Password. David and I have talked about the Secure Notes feature before. But one new thing that just recently rolled out to 1Password is something called Medical Record. And so this means that you can create a record within 1Password for your healthcare professional You can have uh, dates and patient names, reason for visits. You can add medications and notes and tags. And over time, you can build up a health record on your own within one password. If you want to share these records, uh, these details about your health, you can share them with one password for family if you want to. And it's just a great option. So many of us have been doing this sort of thing with secure notes and one password for a long time. But now having structured data within the application makes it all that much easier. So head on over to onepassword.com slash MPU to learn more about the service and you can sign up for a free 30-day trial. When you do, you'll get 20% off. Once again, that's onepassword.com slash MPU. All right, so Teddy, they come to you and say, teach us how to teach remotely. That's your assignment. <laughs> right yep oh and by the way some of the teachers have no idea how to use technology and some of the students don't either <laughs> yeah that is certainly how it felt at times i mean i'll say that the the task kind of fell into two categories though they intersect a bunch the first is the pedagogy um which is just like you know how how you choose to run class how you choose to make interactive how you choose to engage students and how you actually teach and the second was the tech and sort of making sure that the tech was working for you and sort of not getting in the way when it comes to the pedagogy part one of the one of the things that i just kind of point everyone to is and i think uh david you talked about this on your blog dan levy my my mentor um wrote a book on teaching over teaching with zoom that was just incredibly insightful and helpful in terms of understanding just like how to run sessions in a way that keep people engaged and all of that um so so we i spent a ton of time on that and the tech part i had to think of like what are a couple of things that are really you know like really basic things that have very high value that everyone should try to do if they can and so I didn't focus too much on the crazy parts of, of my setup, which we'll probably talk about uh, in this call. But uh, the more basic things that I had to sort of suggest to people to get used to, that was a, a lot of my time. And, and so one of them, which was a kind of a hard, a hard thing to, to suggest to people, was I really, I am now a believer that if, especially if you're doing some kind of interactive presenting with Zoom, be it teaching or otherwise, I think you really need a second monitor of any kind. It could even be like an iPad using Sidecar anything just because not just because it's having having extra space is nice but because zoom has a multi-monitor mode in its preferences and once you turn that off turn that on sorry a lot of stuff changes for the better and so i've become a very very big proponent of just having even if it's just kind of like plugged in and you don't really use it just having a second monitor plugged in so that zoom can go into multi-monitor mode because i think one of the biggest things is as you can imagine when you teach 
you share stuff a lot, you use screen sharing a lot. And with a single monitor, no matter how big or nice it is, if you engage in screen sharing, the participants window becomes like this little strip of, of thumbnails up on the top of your screen, as, as you all have seen, I'm sure. And, you know, for a teacher who wants to see the faces of their students and see how they're reacting to the content, that sucks. It's just really bad to be able to only see a couple at a time and to have it be really kind of like in the corner and not usable. And so if once you activate multi-monitor mode, Zoom will let you uh, keep sort of the grid of students in addition to what you're sharing, which is like a huge step forward as far as just like making screen sharing and engagement possible at the same time. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Sidecar. I'm not sure all the listeners are aware of it, but Apple added a feature. Uh, I believe was it which, which was it just this year that they added Sidecar? It or was, was it last yeah, year? I think so. Yeah, and so it's a, it's an amazing feature. You turn it on, and you can have an iPad next to your computer. It doesn't even have to be connected with a wire, and it becomes a second monitor. And in my experimentation with it, it's I've really never thought of it as a monitor I'd want to like be working on. I think the frame rates are a little slow, mm-hmm. but it's the perfect monitor for something like this, like a, as a reference monitor to show you things like recording tools. Like I mm-hmm. use it when I podcast for recording tools, but or just like see your students' faces, make sure nobody's falling asleep or watching a ball game or something, you know? Totally. I mean, I, I think. Like, first of all, I think having been someone who has wanted to use my iPad as a monitor for many, many years, I used Duet, then I used Luna. I I tried like all the different third party tools. I got to say Sidecar works extremely well. Wirelessly works very well. And wired, if you do have a cable, it's just super, super smooth and consistent. So like that, I think, is a perfectly fine, uh, you know, if you if you have like an iMac or a dedicated screen to just have that be a secondary one so that you can trigger this multi-monitor mode. Another way that I find this useful with my Zoom calls is if you want to use an external camera, like occasionally if I'm doing something that's like a fancy call, mm-hmm. I will set up my good camera and plug it into my computer. And then I'll put sidecar um, iPad right underneath the camera lens. Mm-hmm. And then I can have the other people's faces there. So as I'm inevitably looking at them while I talk, it doesn't look like I'm looking off to the side. Totally. I do exactly the same thing. I actually have, I have an old iPhone and I use Duet because Sidecar doesn't work with um, iPhones. And I just have that mounted just below my external camera. And one of the nice things about multi-monitor view, and and, and there's sort of a hack that I'll talk about in a second, you can put the active speaker view in a dedicated window and have that window live on that screen. So just underneath your camera at all times is whoever's speaking. If it's in a giant class, if a student asks a question, it switches to them. And and having that just like always there, so when you're responding, you're looking directly at them is huge. Now, um, you sent us a picture. Is it okay if we put this in the newsletter or or put yeah, it in the sure, notes? no problem. Yeah, so it's it's really remarkable because the way Teddy's explaining it, it's not just one external monitor; it's two external monitors. One is a you know, it's like looks like a 27 inch maybe or 24 mm-hmm. inch, and then right above that, he's mounted an iPhone, and the iPhone is an external monitor to his Mac. It's just a very small one. Right. And then if you can visualize it right above that, he's got a good camera attached that is probably taking his uh, his video image. So you mm-hmm. can see the active speaker, and then right above it is is the camera that you're looking at. It's very clever. Yeah, it's worked really well for me. Um, one of the things, so a thing that has been, that I, I like Zoom for a lot of reasons. There's some things that are frustrating about it. One thing that frustrates me about Zoom is that it moves windows around a lot. So if you start screen sharing, if you 
go into a breakout room. Like every time you do things, it either makes some windows disappear or it makes some windows shift around in some way, which as a teacher can be very disorienting. And so one, so for, for example, in multi-monitor mode, Zoom will give you both a grid of your, of your students or your participants and an active speaker window. And I use that active speaker window on the iPhone above. Once I screen share, that active speaker window will disappear for whatever reason they chose to do it that way. But I figured out a way to make Zoom keep the gallery view, the active speaker view, and whatever you're screen sharing. And to do that, you've got to, in Zoom settings, you got to do a couple of things. One is you have to toggle a setting, I think, in screen sharing settings that says, show my Zoom windows when I'm sharing my screen. So the idea is that when you share your screen, usually it tries to hide the Zoom UI so that your participants don't see like your video feed of them and stuff like that. If you sure. turn that off, once you screen share, particularly if you screen share an entire desktop, then everything stays the way it is. So what I've done is I've kept my, my, my main MacBook Pro display, the 13-inch the display. That is basically the canvas that I teach from. So I'm always sharing that full desktop, the entire thing. And then my 27-inch and my little iPhone are showing the gallery view and the active speaker view. And then whatever I want them to see, I'm projecting onto the 13-inch screen. So the 13-inch screen is kind of like the window for them to see what I'm teaching. And then the other two monitors I'm actually using to just see my class and engage with them. Yeah, it's like the canvas. Yes. And um, I, I would assume that by leaving that, uh, that checkbox turned on, then it's preserving that iPhone screen as a speaker view, and it doesn't it doesn't have a chance to reset itself like it exactly. would keep it turned off. So it just stays where it is. I mean, it's annoying and it's kind of scary because then if you share the wrong thing, suddenly see people are just seeing all your Zoom stuff, and you know, sharing an entire desktop is a little scarier than sharing an individual window. Sure. But in that process, you at least have more control over just what you're seeing. And then you probably have a big Post-it note somewhere that says "turn." Uh, put in do not disturb mode or something before you start each class. <laughs> I most certainly do, yes. How, how does all that set up withstand things like reboots or taking your laptop away and, and bringing it back? Does, does Zoom do a good job preserving where things were when you sort of start from scratch? So when you, when you the, the setting to keep showing everything persists, but Zoom just, for whatever reason, it just loves moving windows around. It keeps the windows where they are. So I have a keyboard maestro thing that just moves the windows around to where I want them, including onto my phone screen and gets everything set up. And then we'll talk about this later, but I have a Stream Deck macro attached to, sorry, Stream Deck button attached to that macro. So whenever I start a Zoom meeting, I press that button and it like moves everything to where I want it. Okay. What's the back end of that button? What is it using to do the window management? I'm using, I think I actually heard about this from you, David, KM Link, I think it's called. It's yeah. like, a, so, because I would, I, I mean, you, pro you probably talked about this, but Stream Deck's native keyboard maestro plugin is very unpleasant to use. And there are other ways to do it, like via URL schemes, but the KM Link thing is so nice because it just gives you a list of all your macros and you can just select them from a drop down. So I use that for all my keyboard maestro stuff. And then, and then using keyboard maestro to do the window resizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So how is it going? Um, you know, you, you talked to us a little about virtual cameras and teaching. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I, this is a thing that got pretty popular, I think, in the past year because of, of teaching over Zoom. So virtual cameras are just 
you know, usually when you go to Zoom and you click on the list of cameras to choose from, it'll choose your webcam. If you have an external camera chosen uh, available, it'll select that. It'll show that as an option. Virtual cameras are basically a software-based camera that shows you some content that an application provides. So, you know, there are some apps that will let you use your phone's camera as a as the camera and that, that it'll make sort of a virtual camera for your phone's camera feed. And there are other things that people have been using, such as OBS and MMHMM. It makes me laugh just to say it. Um, and OBS and mm-hmm are cool, cool apps because they let you overlay your video over slides, over visuals. So like a popular thing that that among a lot of uh, more tech minded academics in the past year was to have your slides sort of hovering behind you and have you just kind of like living in the corner of that screen talking as your slides were sort of happening behind you that felt more engaging than just sharing slides and having your video be part of the whole grid of videos of Zoom. If you've ever watched the news or late night TV, that's what they do. You know, they'll talk and then suddenly uh, slides will appear next to their head. And you can do that yourself using mm-hmm and OBS. And I agree with you. This this name mm-hmm is like the worst <laughs> ever. It's pretty bad. M-M-H-M-M if you're looking it up. But it's it's actually quite powerful. Yeah, and it works. It, it works in a very cool way, particularly if you have like not super busy visuals. Like if you just have like big picture slides and things like that, it can work. The downside to this, and I did a bunch of experimentation with it over the summer, and I and I wrote about it on my blog, is that Zoom. I, I learned a lot about how Zoom is like dealing with this massive load of sudden sudden people needing to be online all the time via video conferencing. Zoom is basically constantly making a trade off between frame rate and resolution, assuming that people should be high frame rate, so it looks smooth and not jerky, and content should be high resolution, so you can actually read all the text on the slides. And so what Zoom does is when you're screen sharing, it uses high resolution, low frame rate, but your video feed is low resolution, high frame rate. The problem with using a third-party solution that then overlays those two things together is that you either get you overlaid on your slides and you're kind of jumping around super jerkily or it looks smooth and people can't really read the smaller text on your slides, right? So Zoom is constantly making this trade-off and a third-party app, like, it just has trouble doing it. So mm-hmm has this workaround where you use the Zoom screen sharing button to share like a window that it creates for you, but that then makes your video feed pretty choppy. And I basically haven't found a good workaround for this. So basically, like until Zoom has a na- a good native solution, it kind of has a, an okay native solution with sharing PowerPoint slides right now, but until Zoom has a robust solution that lets you basically say, when I share stuff, keep it high res and then overlay me in low res on top of it, it just isn't going to be a good trade-off. Um, and, and that's, I think, pretty different from what people were doing when they, they traditionally use OBS to like stream stuff on YouTube. When you stream stuff on YouTube, there can be like a five or 10 second delay and none of your viewers know about it, right? So they can actually process all this and make a high frame rate, high resolution feed for people. In Zoom, you need to be, they need to be processing this like on a second by second basis. And mm-hmm. so doing this stuff live doesn't work very well with OBS, even though OBS would then work very well in like a more detached streaming context. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is they just don't have the bandwidth. Right. And in fact, there was a while, I think they might still be doing it, when Zoom just said, hey, there's a button in your settings that says stream in 1080p. 
just so you know, that doesn't do anything. We had to turn that off because <laughs> right. we because of the pandemic. Hopefully one time, maybe we'll be able to turn it on again. I think some institutions like negotiated with Zoom to let them, their server have 1080p res. So it's just like, they're totally overwhelmed. So my current advice is unless you have just like more aesthetic slides and less content-based slides, you kind of shouldn't use this virtual camera overlaying thing until Zoom has a better solution for us. And there's nothing wrong with with just sharing a screen to like a keynote presentation or a set of PDFs. You, I mean, it's not the end of the world. I think it's exactly right. And in fact, one of the things I learned from from Dan and his Zoom book is you should also be comfortable sharing and unsharing stuff during the course of your talk. So if you want to shift to discussion, just stop sharing your screen and then everyone can see everyone. You don't have to worry about overlaying your stuff in this cool way and then start sharing again when you want people to look at it. My The hack that I use to make everything stay in the same place really helps with that because the jump between sharing and not sharing isn't as like jarring basically for you as a speaker. So I would suggest instead just like be more intentional about when you're sharing and what you're sharing rather than trying this process, which doesn't work that well, to be honest. Back when I tried more cases, I had um, a remote for my keynote that would just turn the screen black. And oh, that's great. In, in the middle of a presentation, I called it the serenity button, right? It's like <laughs> when I push that button, magically 12 licensed drivers from California stop looking at the screen and they look at me. And that's when I want to like drive home a serenity point. You know, I want them mm-hmm. to understand something. And then once I press the button again, they magically point their attention back at the screen. So um, it, this is the Zoom equivalent of that. And I imagine, too, it makes it less jarring for the the people on the other end, in your case, students. But we've all been on Zoom calls where someone's like, oh, let me share this. And then they're poking around for 30 seconds trying to get it going. And you, I guess you've done the work on the front end to take away that sort of awkward middle ground where you can just tap a button and keep going. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, the hard thing with remote learning for me, and I think remote conversations more generally, is everything's mediated through text suddenly. And so the more you can make that feel frictionless, the more you can move past that without drawing people's attention too much, the closer it feels to actually interacting with people, the more you can focus on engaging with them and talking with them instead of like, oh, hang on, let me like find this file and make sure it's open and blah, blah, blah. So how do you make that more smooth? You know, just getting from, you're looking at my face to to you're looking at um, something on my screen. Uh, or do you have any tips for the the listeners on how to do that easier or faster? One thing that helps for me as the speaker is this thing where where you share the entire desktop and you turn that Zoom setting on so that it isn't rearranging your windows every time. And so it, from, from your perspective, it's just like you're sharing or you're not sharing. You just press a button to share and not share. You can also make a keyboard maestro macro, though Zoom is not as user-friendly in this respect as I'd like, to basically make a button that presses the share screen button and then selects the correct desktop from that grid of windows that pops up when you press share screen on Zoom. And so that makes it, and then if you press that button again, it checks to see if screen sharing is active. And if it's if it is, then it stops it. So you just basically have a toggle button on your stream deck that will start sharing that or stop sharing that with minimal, you know, poking around at buttons and making sure you're selecting the right stuff. So how, how are you pulling that off? Is it doing anything where it compares images or is there a menu item? It doesn't do the image compare thing just because I've, I've found that to be pretty unreliable with Keyboard Maestro and I've had to like figgle, fig, fiddle with the uh, 
like the blur effect to figure out like how low res it can be. Anyway, so what I do is I press the, I have it press a uh, menu bar item, which is start share. And then I basically have it use the tab key and arrow keys to like move until it's selecting the correct desktop. Sure. On zoom. The problem with that, which has happened to me in the past is zoom updates its stuff like every two weeks and it makes a lot of changes that it doesn't tell you about so there was a time when it kind of moved around it made some very small changes to the ui that meant that that macro no longer worked so you have every time there's an update you should just make sure that it's like the ui is consistent enough that that macro still shares the thing you want to share i do think that there's something to that though like when you're talking just like I had my little serenity button, you want a very easy way to do this where people don't see you like managing that. They, you know, you lose the thread when they're like, oh, okay, now he's going to fiddle with his computer so I can turn him off. Totally. And it wasn't until, I mean, I had heard so much about the stream deck before and I kind of couldn't really figure out a use for it that was like compelling enough. It wasn't until I started using it for this stuff to just make it so that I would just think about like, what are the modes when I'm teaching or in a, in a call, I'm presenting a desktop, I'm talking to people, I'm engaging with the chat. What are buttons I could use to just get into those modes as quickly as possible? And then once you fine tune it based on that, suddenly those sessions feel a lot less clunky. Yeah. And also, I mean, just the stream deck in general is very Zoom friendly. I mean, you're streaming in essence, right? So totally. Uh, they have a, an, a, an additional plugin you can download for it now that installs all of the, the buttons for Zoom. Like my wife uses my setup often because she's on a board of a nonprofit. And so they have these big fancy meetings. So I set her up with it. And her having a button there that says mute and another button that says turn off camera. I think she finds that really handy, you know, because she might like dig through the menus, but it's so much easier when it's staring right back at you. Yeah, definitely. And those buttons are really nice on Stream Deck because they'll also change what they show depending on if the mic or video is on and off. Right. So like you also have this dashboard that's just telling you, you know, mic's muted, video's on. I'm not screen sharing. I don't know, Stephen, how it happened, but suddenly the Stream Deck seems to be just like everywhere. Maybe that's another (laughs) COVID thing. It's everywhere. Uh, This. This Zoom plugin stuff for the stream deck looks really cool. Oh, yeah, it's great. And it, it does it for you. So you don't even have to set it up or create keyboard maestro scripts. Just install it and you're done. Yep. I'm doing it right now. I think it was a it was a pandemic thing because like early on in the pandemic, I most of my research was like watching people's vids on like how to be a good YouTube influencer. You know, I was like re- watching all these videos of like how to make people's streams look good and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's how I learned about stream decks and all these other hardware and stuff. It's because at the time like, we all had to become streamers basically for the past year. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move and enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Just go to squarespace.com slash MPU. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag and drop tools to make it your own. You can customize the look and feel and settings, the products you have on sale, and more with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile, 
Your content automatically adjusts so it will look great on any device. You'll also get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain. I did that when I just set up a Squarespace site for the DLRfieldguide.com. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. You can use Squarespace to turn your big idea into a new website, showcase your work with their incredible portfolio designs, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and much more. So my wife Daisy and I just decided to make this fun YouTube channel about Disneyland, DLRfieldguide.com. We set it up at Squarespace because I knew she'd be doing most of the work on it, and I didn't want to make it difficult. She's already a Squarespace pro, and she runs the entire website. Another nice feature they had that I wasn't even aware of was the ability to purchase other domains and point them at the website there. So we also got Disneyland Field Guide. It's been working out great for us using one of their built-in templates that we're slowly transforming into the website that we want. Head over to squarespace.com MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Mac Power Users. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power Users and all of Relay FM. So we've talked a lot about the computer side of this, but you have a camera and I can see in this picture you have some sort of video switcher. So what else have you built up around the Mac to make all this possible? Cool. So these are the things that I did not really tell any of my colleagues about in the past year because they were learning how to teach effectively in Zoom. And I didn't want them to get distracted with like fancy stuff like this. But on my own time and my own dime, I did end up investing quite a bit in solutions to like make this all look nice. So I'm not a photographer I've never had a DSLR or mirrorless camera or anything before. I bought one uh, that that has a clean HDMI feed, which is to say it can just output directly without showing the, like the camera UI. And I plugged that into this thing called an ATEM Mini, which I think was talked about on a different uh, show of y'all's, different episode rather. I think it was Micah's show. We got into that. There you go. So I plug in this very nice camera directly into this ATEM Mini. And ATEM Mini is basically just a, 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 a pretty small video switcher to like overlay sources and switch between sources. Um, and so that's what I use to plug in my camera uh, directly into that ATEM, which which ends up working pretty well. Um, it has a lot of features to like switch between different sources and do cool things like that. I ended up not really using that as much as I thought I would uh, while I was teaching to like switch between sources and stuff. But it also has an audio interface, which I use to plug in an XLR mic and a, and, a, and a lapel mic as well. And it's not great. The quality isn't as, as good as, you know, a dedicated audio interface, but it's pretty good. And Zoom, I think there's a lot of processing to like reduce noise and stuff on its own. So the ATEM is basically what I use for all of my audio and video uh, while I teach. And the uh, I learned very quickly that photography is extremely expensive. And so <laughs> in, in trying to figure out how to make, like I really wanted to get like a nice bokeh effect and like a good depth of field and everything. And so what I did was via um, 
a recommendation by Luke Stein, who's a, a professor at Babson. He's been really good on Twitter, sharing a lot more tech-oriented stuff uh, for teachers. He pointed me to Amazon sells a bunch of cheap manual lenses, so they don't do any autofocus, but you can get one with like a really wide aperture. And I don't move around that much when I teach where I needed to constantly be autofocusing. So I got a pretty cheap manual lens to put on this Panasonic Lumix camera um, that gives me like a very nice soft image that I like in student evaluations and stuff, students talk about how nice my image is. So I, I guess it's helpful for them in that respect. But it's also just kind of something that I think is fun and fun, uh, uh, funny to, to work with that makes, you know, it just like makes your visual a lot more uh, nice and compelling and, and warm for, for students. Do you put a backdrop behind you as well? I, ha- I have a, a whiteboard behind me. And there was a while when I was trying out a method to like switch to the white, like have a different camera, like my iPhone camera, switch to the whiteboard so that I could like do some board work. But I very quickly found out that people just preferred when I wrote on my iPad. So now it's just kind of like a prop. And, you know, I'll have like equations that I was writing earlier. So it like looks like I'm, you know, you just walked into me in my office while I have these like blurry equations behind me. But that's the only that's the only thing I have behind me. Now, the ATM Mini for listeners is it's a device you can plug, I believe, up to four HDMI devices into. And then you push a button and it's got an output. And then so you can push a button to jump between them. So like if you have like, you know, in Teddy's case, he's got a, a camera and probably your iPad and a couple other things. And you can jump between them just by pushing a single button, which is pretty convenient. Uh, I think they start at about 300 bucks. They've got different flavors of them. Uh, which one did you end up getting? I got the the cheapest I could find, which was, I think, it was 300 bucks. Um, I think once you go higher than that, it has like its own dedicated, uh, you can like save stuff locally to a hard drive directly from the ATEM. You can stream directly from the ATEM instead of going through your computer they get like good for streamers and like really high end professionals, but the base model is plenty uh, for the kind of stuff I do. And one of the nice features of it, because I have several friends that use these, I, I have not gone down this particular rabbit hole, but the uh, but the transitions are really nice. Like when you switch from iPad to Teddy Cam, it pro- it, I don't know if you're using a crossfade or whatever, but they've got all these nice little transitions, so it yeah. does really look professional. Yeah, I, I use the crossfade. They also have like a you know, like it like squishes you and the other thing moves in. They have some really silly ones too, but the crossfade works really well. I have my my main camera, a secondary iPhone camera for pointing at my whiteboard and also an Apple TV, which I use to airplay from my iPad so I don't have to have my iPad hardwired to it. Yeah. And a nice thing about the ATEM also is that on the device, you can easily switch to something like an Apple TV that's projecting slides and then put yourself in the corner in like a picture in picture thing. Mm-hmm. So it'll like use your main camera feed in the corner and then have your slides as the main thing, which is nice. Yeah. And and one thing that I think would be would be nice about this is you're doing all of this on a device where I have a lot of this set up in OBS Streamlabs, but if I want picture in pictures because I've made a little setup for that and I can switch between them in the software, but with this you're doing it all in a box. You're reaching out. You're discreetly pushing a button. And then the HDMI, I guess, coming into your computer from it. Like, that's the only thing you really have to worry about getting into Zoom. You're not having all these different scenes or scenarios. You're trying to switch between them in software. That's exactly right. And I and part of why I did that was, so I should say, just like Steven said, with the exception of just like getting your camera feed into your computer, most of the stuff that the ATEM can do, you can do on the software side with something like OBS. 
I made the decision pretty early on to do more hardware based stuff. Part of it was because I was using an Intel MacBook Pro and I just like was terrified of having another program running while I was trying to run Zoom because it was stuttering all the time. But as a result, I have like a much more hardware based uh, approach to stuff that you can do with software. So that, that's absolutely worth noting. In fact, the, the other thing that I do a lot with my ATEM, which is something you can also do with OBS, is um, I overlay timers on my feed a lot. So like I said, you don't want to overlay like, ju- like, you know, detailed slides behind you. But a nice thing you can do, and OBS does this pretty nicely as well, is you can just have a clock show up on the corner of your screen of your feed that has some countdown timer. And I think that's really helpful for certainly for class time. Like I have a countdown to when class starts. So when people start coming in early and I'm playing music on a playlist, I can like, they can see how much time is left before class starts. Even in a meeting, if you want to keep people on task and you say like, okay, we're each going to take five minutes, having a little five minute countdown timer on the corner of your screen is, is really nice for people to just be able to, to reference it. So you can do that with OBS. I do it with a hardware solution which is I have an old MacBook. So it, you, you need another computer for this. And it can be a very, very old one. It doesn't have to be like, you know, fancy by any stretch. So I have an old MacBook whose keyboard broke because it was using the old keyboard. So I don't even use the keyboard <laughs> anymore. And okay. it's running a, a app called H2R Graphics, which is, stands for Here to Record Graphics. And basically all it does is it creates a green screen with an overlay for timers, uh, a, a news ticker, messages. Like you can just overlay any kind of text or images on top of your screen. And the ATEM Mini takes that feed and puts it behind, or, uh, sort of overlays it on top of your main feed. So you can have this other way of interacting with your, your video feed via these things. So H2R graphics, I use a ton for, for timers. And luckily there is another application that works with Stream Deck called Companion that lets you control H2R graphics, lets you control your ATEM Mini, lets you control all this hardware stuff from the same Stream Deck that you're using for everything else. So thanks to that, I never really touch that external, that other computer. I just have buttons on my Stream Deck that uh, triggers different timers and images and text and stuff. And you also trigger the ATEM with the Stream Deck? Yeah, so you can you can set up some pretty sophisticated macros um, within the str- for when you press a button on the Stream Deck, the A10 Mini will activate a certain feed, overlay a different feed, change your mic to a particular mic. You can have this sort of multi-step process that the companion does really effectively, um, just running on your computer. Oh man, that's I'm downloading that one today. <laughs> Stephen, have you drunk from the uh, the well of the A10? I feel like that's something that you would have on your desk. Yeah, I haven't. I considered it when I set up my streaming stuff for Twitch, but what I ended up doing was building those scenes in OBS and I you can control them with a stream deck. So I have a second stream deck. I have one on my PC that I have those those scenes set up so I can switch between them very quickly. So I'm doing it more in software. Now that means that I have four HDMI capture cards in my PC to grab all those camera feeds. Oh, wow. And so it would have probably been simpler and probably cheaper to do the ATEM route, but uh, I decided not to. And really, for me, it just kind of was basically a flip of a coin between between the two ways of doing it because they both are uh, extremely effective. But I, I ended up going for the the capture card and doing it in software route instead. Yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on your on your preferences. Like I've ended up going hardware for everything. I mean, even even when I airplay to my computer 
instead of using an app like Reflector, which lets you AirPlay directly on your computer, mm-hmm. I have an Apple TV. I use the Apple TV plugged into the ATEM, yeah. and I broadcast that way. So, like, I, I, you know, the points of failure are then each of the hardware components instead of the software. So it really is just a trade-off for which you're more comfortable with. Yeah, and I believe the ATEM, at least the mini, I'm not sure about the bigger ones, is 1080p output. Yep. And I'm doing my stuff at 4K. So that was another another thing to consider. Man, here I am trying to just get 720p in Zoom and you're doing 4K. <laughs> yeah, we're just going straight to Twitch or even just using that rig to record things. It's nice to have the flexibility to go up to 4K if I need it. Sure. It's all overkill, sense. man. It's all <laughs> it's all overkill. Yeah, I, I mean, there's part of me that wants to have an ATIM because it just looks cool. And then, of course, I would use the Star Wars style wipes, you know? Of course. The line drawing across. Oh, yeah. But, but then the idea of more stuff and more cables on my desk is is a problem for me. So I, I just can't justify it. But you feel cool with a bunch of light-up buttons, right? It's like your own TV station. Yeah, there you go. There you it go. sure does feel that way. And the um I do some um yeah, I do some presentations where it would be nice to be able to switch between cameras easily, but I've done the same thing. I've set it up with Stream Deck buttons and kind of done the the poor man's version. But but I'm glad to hear it's working. Have you ever had any problems, Teddy, any technical issues with this setup that people should be aware of? Every now and then I find that the like the ATEM sometimes I basically have to cycle the ATEM. Like the camera feed will be kind of fuzzy or will like have a line where it shouldn't have it. And so I just have to cycle the ATEM. So what I do for that is I just uh hook up the ATEM to a smart switch and then I have a home kit scene that basically just turns it off, waits a second, and then turns it on again, and then everything gets fixed. Yeah, have you tried turning it off and on again? I took apart all my Christmas stuff, so I had a couple extra plugs, and I now have one connected to my router and one connected to my uh, to my Aero base station for the same reason. Like, once in a while, the internet gets wonky. I just pull out my phone and reset them. Yeah, and actually, uh, that reminds me, there's an app that I really like using um, on my Mac called Home Control Menu. Oh, yeah. and that is so it lets you control all your stuff like just from your menu bar basically like the home app but a really cool thing it does that a lot of other apps like this don't is it actually has like a url scheme to trigger scenes and so i use my stream deck with those url schemes to i have a button on my stream deck that says cycle atem and i press the button and it turns off the atem waits a few seconds turns it back on and i don't have to touch anything yeah and the nice thing about doing it with URL schemes on the stream deck is that you can run it with native stream deck um actions there's a URL action mm-hmm. and you don't have to like you know run it through keyboard maestro or some you don't have to rely on some third party app to make it work you just copy the URL you paste it into a button and I've done the same thing I've got like my whole house I've got a screen of stream deck buttons that allows me to run my whole house Oh that's awesome so you're using home control as well Yeah Great app. What are you doing for lighting? So I have a set of LED light panels, which when people actually, when people have started coming to my home now, since the pandemic uh, in the US at least has started to wane a little bit, they have been very floored by these LED, very nice panels. I got them from B&H on sale like a while ago. And these two light panels are just pointing straight up into my ceiling and they give like a very nice sort of soft uh, look to the to my video feed. And that I also have connected to the home control menu. So I have a button to toggle my my it'll turn off all the lights in my ha- in my room except for those light panels. 
And that, I would argue, maybe has been better for my video feed than the really nice DSLR. Like, having that really soft video uh, uh, lighting that just, like, accentuates just, like, yourself and, and kind of puts the background uh, out of focus a bit has been really, really helpful. So, I don't know. I, I'm actually not sure which of those two investments was more effective. And this was certainly a lot cheaper than getting a DSLR. Yeah. I mean, you know, LED light panels are, I mean are not that expensive. Um, like I have a couple that are relatively small. I think they're like 14 inches square that I got off, got off Amazon for like $60, but they're really powerful. And like, uh, I would recommend getting a third one and pointing it at the whiteboard behind you, uh, mm. to backlight yourself a little bit. But the, um, mm-hmm. but this is like a problem that used to be super expensive and the lights were really hot and it was just a, it was just a big problem in the early days, but now with led technology, anybody can set this up without spending a ton of money. Now I feel even more like a newscaster because I have got these like big fancy light things in front of me. Yeah. And it it makes such a big difference. And it means that your camera can be, uh, more easily used for like a more dynamic image. And it really Mm -hmm. isn't as hard as it, as it used to be. Uh, I think a lot of people find lighting, pretty intimidating i know i certainly did when i got started in video stuff but with some experimentation and like you know you're you figured out how to you know bounce it off your ceiling and you know uh if you if you're a glasses wear you always have to worry about glare and all those things but with a little time it's really not too bad yeah no i totally agree and and uh i found bnh was a, a, a newsletter that i had to stop subscribing to because every day it would send like deals for uh video and audio hardware and so there were there were light panel sales all the time i had to i had to unsubscribe because i was buying too much stuff but it's worth subscribing for a little while to like find a nice deal on some pretty solid uh light panels yeah and like within a week or two you can unsubscribe again there you go uh so how is this all working with with you know students and teaching people or even for people at home that aren't teaching but are maybe working with coworkers? Um, how do you, uh, how are you doing and where, what are the challenges you're facing? Yeah. So I would say so this is especially true from a teaching perspective, though. I think it's worth thinking about this from anyone who is doing any kind of like extended talking or presenting or streaming or anything is at first I, you know, I have this nice 27 inch 5k monitor and I had like all these great windows all set up. And, you know, I think in a previous MPU, I talked about how when I'm teaching in person, I have a main projector screen and a side screen that has like supplemental slides that people can look at to like give context to the main screen. So for a while I was like, oh, I could easily replicate this using AirPlay to have two screens, like, you know, an iPad and a separate thing that I'm broadcasting all at once to people so they can see both sets of content at the same time. And it kind of took it. I very quickly realized that I, I sort of call it like the lowest common screen size problem, which is that even if you have a really nice setup, your the people your participants, the people you're talking to, are encountering everything through what's probably a 13-inch screen. Maybe, maybe more, but most likely a 13-inch screen. And so the fact that I could replicate this super nice dual content setup that looked really great on my screen, when it came to the students, they were looking at all that stuff, plus the chat window and the participants window, plus whatever polls I was showing, it was just way too much for them. And they were trying to take notes at the same time. So like, I realized that I had to rethink this from what would this look like from a participant who has a 13 inch, like, okay resolution computer, 
and work from there because that is is I think it's very easy for the tech to kind of step on itself and to become too overwhelming for students, particularly if you really like doing this stuff like I do. And so I've had to rethink how I approach it from the perspective of somebody with those limitations and then see how I can make the most use of their screen real estate, even though mine ends up being pretty you know, spacious. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point, because not only do a lot of people have small screens, I know when I get them on Zoom calls, the first thing I do is I take it out of full screen mode. Right. And I shrink it down even more, so I have room to take notes or you know do whatever on the screen. Uh, so the Zoom call gets very small. So I guess yep. that changes your the way you present slides and information. It totally doesn't. And even you know, if internet connections aren't as good, then the the resolution of of your slides are going to be lower. So you have to make sure you use you know big text and like sparse text. Don't get too in the weeds in the things that you present. Like stuff like that ends up being incredibly important because then it looks really nice to you. You feel like you're doing a great job as a teacher and to many of your students, they like can't really follow anything that you're, that you're sort of teaching. And so uh, trying to figure it out from their perspective, I think is quite important. Similarly, I ended up using as teachers, we like using things like polls to sort of get people engaged. And for a while I was using third party poll software, which is what I use in uh, in person, like poll everywhere. I've, I've since tried to use zooms native stuff as much as I possibly can, just so that there's less stuff for my students to worry about, right? So if the poll pop-up is within Zoom, if the chat is within Zoom, even though that the polling software and the chat, you know, interface is not as good as if I was using Slack or if I was using Poll Everywhere, it's easier for them to use and they're more engaged in that way. So I have really tried to strip down the number of other tools I ask students to interact with as compared to what I do in person. So in a weird way, I've had to like get some of the tech that I'm used to out of the way in order to focus more on like the fundamental stuff. This episode of Mac Power Users is also brought to you by Make Do from Relay FM. You don't have to monetize your hobbies, but if you want to, the Make Do podcast is ready to be your cheerleader. Host Tiff Arment is a glass artist, painter, and photographer with a not so secret past in Broadway costuming. Also hosting is Julia Scott, a journalist, potter, and self proclaimed textile goblin. Make Do has some really great episodes out there. I recommend Don't Tell Me How to Hobby and The Myth of the Tragic Artist. They're great places to get started, but they're so much fun to listen to. You can also just get started from episode one and enjoy the whole run of Make Do. So listen as you work on your hobby. Go to relay.fm slash make do or search for make do. That's M-A-K-E-D-O wherever you get your podcasts. So, Teddy, you were telling me that you're also doing some contextual computing these days. Yeah. Um, so inspired by by you and all the stuff at MPU, I've been really interested in, I mean, I've wanted this kind of stuff for a very long time, which is just being able to easily access stuff that I need when I'm working on something so I don't spend time trying to find it. This is especially true because I personally use iCloud Drive a lot for my files. Other, you know, when I share with colleagues, I was saying before I use Dropbox. I'm using mail with messages. I'm using Apple notes. Like I have all these different places where stuff lives and trying to figure out how to appropriately make sure that they're all accessible when I, when I need them has been, has been challenging. And so I looked into sometimes like, you know, a lot of these tools that kind of like centralize everything where you have like a Devon thing, for example, where you just have everything in the same app and it's easy to work with. I found that I was really relying on things like Apple notes, like my things like that especially my know now that it has it's like 
they're they're testing this outlining function, which works really quite well. Yeah, that's that's. Let me just talk about that for a second. It's yeah, go ahead. I mean, it forever or for a long time, MindNote has had the ability to display your mind map as an outline, and now they've released a version on the Mac, and they've got a another version in beta on iPhone and iPad where you can actually use it as an outline. You write an outline, and it goes to to a mind map, you know, and I used to do this really funny OPML dance where I dance back between different apps, but now you can have an outliner and a mind map in the same app. And that I find to be a killer feature. I mean, I, I really am using MindNode more than ever because of that. Absolutely. I mean, I, cause I was switching between that and Omni outliner a lot and it got really annoying to have to keep, I remember you had, I, I think I referenced this before you wrote an article like, you know, so many years ago oh, yeah, called like dancing years with opml ago. yeah yeah that really resonated with me a lot david because like the idea of an interoperable thing that i could use in different contexts was great but i had to switch between the apps constantly where now i kind of just do most of my outlining and mind mapping in my node anyway so i loved using things like my node and apple notes but i didn't you know i then had to like have a ton of windows open with all the things that i thought i needed to make my mind map and because i couldn't really kind of like link them within my node and thanks to Hook, which I think you've talked about on the show before, right? Yeah. Yeah, we had the developer on. Yeah. Yeah, Luke. So so Hook is an app that, like, I think it can do a million more things than I know it can. Like, I, I think it's a very, very deep and intense app. I use it for one thing, and it works incredibly well, and I'm a huge fan of it, which is that any object I'm interacting with, be it a document or an email or an Apple Note or whatever... I can just get a link to it. I press a button and I have a link copy to my clipboard that just opens that particular thing. So suddenly, rather than needing like a Devon Think or uh, you know Notion or something like that, I can use whatever apps I normally use, like MyNote or Things or Apple Notes, and just link to a bunch of stuff. So now my MyNode mind maps have a ton of links embedded into the different nodes that just use Hook to open supplementary content. So like, if I'm if I'm planning a new class and I want to reference a couple of papers, and I want to reference something that I talked about in a previous lecture, in my mind node mind map, I will have a bunch of links in the, in the map where when I click on them, it just opens up those respective documents easily. So suddenly at my fingertips, I have all of this really useful stuff. And it doesn't matter what app was used to create it. It doesn't matter if it's a mail message or a note or whatever. Because of Hook, I just have a link to it that I can embed in whatever existing app that I use. Yeah, I feel like for contextual computing, you usually need like one source talk, you know, like one place you go to. Like I think Luke uses like a text edit file, but I use a um, an Obsidian page and mm. you're using a MyNode file. But either way, you have like one place you go to is like the central hub of that thought or project. I mean, and it's totally, it has made my life so much easier. I mean, it basically to me is like, it added a function to my node that I desperately needed that I could not imagine my node ever creating because I couldn't manage, you know, I can't make my node get links to all every other app. So Hook really does that for me. The only downside, which further frustrates me about iPads, is that, you know, Hook works on Macs. And so, you know, if I have a my node and I'm go- I go to my iPad, those links don't really work to those documents, unfortunately. I can still work on the mind map, but I can't use the links within the iPad app. The way I deal with that is I don't use hook, hook links for everything. Like for email, there is a mail to link mechanism on Apple devices that works uh, both on iPad, iPhone, and Mac. So I'll use the email links from the native mail linking 
technique. Mm-hmm. Um, like if OmniFocus does the same thing. OmniFocus will create a link to anywhere in OmniFocus. I would assume things does that too. I'm not sure. I haven't played with it in a while. Yep, it does. It, so, and that'll work on every platform. So wherever I've got a link format provided either by Apple or a developer that's cross-platform, I use those. And then Hook is what fills in the places that I don't have that feature, like mm-hmm. iCloud. iCloud is a good one. iCloud files and folders don't have a method, and I have to use Hook for that. Um, yep. But alternatively, you, you could use DevonThink as your file server, and the DevonThink links would work cross-platform. That's true. That's actually a good point. I mean, one, one of the things I do with Hook is that I think you have to maybe subscribe, like be a subscriber to their pro plan or something like that. But you can actually edit the scripts that they use to get links. So, for example, Hook usually gets a Hook-specific mail message link. Yeah. But I edited this the script so that it gets a link to the mail message that's like universal across all of Apple's apps. So now when I trigger Hook from within mail, it gets a universal link instead of just a Hook link. That's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Have you gone the extra step to and link back to the mine node file? I mean, like if you go into like your things project, do you have a link back to my node on it? Yeah, I've been trying to do stuff like this. And even I think uh, Hook does this thing where you don't even need like a central document. You could just have it yeah. so that whenever you whenever you trigger it, it shows you related documents. I've tried to get into that. I like aspire to be what Luke, I think, wants his, his users to be like but I just can't quite get there. So I end up, I end up just using basically the mind map as the central hub. I I'm the same way. I mean, I I've played with that feature, but honestly with the nice thing about the obsidian file for me is I can write notes and I can do a lot more in there than just collect links. So I, I kind of find the extra power of that making it worth it for me, but I do have link back. So like if I go to, if I have files in a Devon think group, then that group links back to the obsidian file. Or if I have, uh, a um, OmniFocus project that also links back. So it, it really is nice to be able to jump back and forth. So you're using Obsidian, DevonThink, Hook. You're using all of it. Yeah, man. I'm all in. Wow. I'm all in. But it, it took a while. This de- developed organically for me over time. But now, like, I'm like the master of my domain. Like, anything I want related to any project is one click away. It's like the dream, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, another trick I do is in Obsidian, I take notes on emails and documents. Like, this is the version of the document I made after I talked to the other lawyer and he wanted this, this, and that. And I can take notes and have that all in Obsidian. So I have annotations on documents, basically. And then I push one button and it opens the document. It's great. You can do the same thing with emails, too. I like that idea. I I had not thought of that as like a, a meta commentary on existing conversations or documents or whatever yeah david's computer is basically that room with the push pins and red string everywhere you know like you, you can pull <laughs> on is. any thread and get anywhere else you need to go right yeah, right right it, wow. it, it is it's the strings it's the red string and yarn. <laughs> but it's powerful and uh you know it, it is a weird you know conglomeration of tools but it, it seems to work now i know Teddy, that you are using the, you know, the iWork suite, pages, keynote numbers. I sure am. Are you still all in with those? I I am. I wouldn't say all in because when I co-teach with people, I go, I have to go back to office. And I think, I think I'm like one of the more extreme advocates for the iWork suite. I mean, I think keynote people are pretty on board with keynote being really good and, you know, better than PowerPoint in a lot of ways. Um, 
one thing that Keynote did recently that has been really good is it made this window at presenting mode where it doesn't take over your screen anymore. Yeah. It just makes a presenter in a window, which has been really nice because it used to be the case for me that if I wanted to present Keynote, I'd have to basically share my iPad screen via Zoom. Whereas now I can just share that window and then use my iPad's remote function to annotate on the slide that's being shared. That's just like local on my Mac, which is really nice. Yeah. And we should have talked about that earlier when you're talking about Zoom that, you know, this allows you to give your keynote presentation in a window so you don't lose your control of your entire Mac while you're doing it. It's really, really great. And I mean, keynotes remote function, I think is like really an unsung hero in the, in the presentation app wars. Like the fact that any uh, my iPad, my iPhone, if a, if a presentation is running on my Mac, I can connect to it remotely from my iPhone or iPad via peer-to-peer. I don't even need like a common network and I can annotate on it. Like I can use my Apple Pencil and I could write on it even though it's a presentation being shared directly on my Mac. So the windowed mode plus remote annotation has been really nice. The downside to Keynote and literally every Keynote release, I write to them asking them to do something about this is the annotation function is still incredibly basic. Like when you if you if you try to write on a keynote slide there's no thickness it's just a color there's no eraser there's just an undo button and if you accidentally x out of the presentation like the presentation mode all those annotations go away they don't persist in any way so it really frustrates me because apple has pencil kit right they have this really nice interoperable set of pens and erasers and highlighters and whatever but when you're presenting on keynote you can't use any of them it just drives me nuts well, I do know some of the iWork team listens to this show, so hopefully they're taking please, 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 please. Um, but I, I also use the other, I use pages and numbers too, which I think is less exciting to a lot of people. Um, part of why I use all three is that their equation support is like way better than Microsoft Office's. You can use LaTeX, which is like this common universal standard for writing equations, and it, it works across all three suites and it, you can just paste in LaTeX code and it'll make a nice equation for you. Um, so I use that in pages for most of my handouts. And numbers has this really nice function that I haven't been able to replicate as well in Excel, which is this, um, I think it's called organize or maybe groups function where you can basically just, it's sort of like a pivot table. You can like group everything according to a particular field, uh, yeah. field right? And so a thing that I do a lot is I have all my students do these pre-class quizzes before class starts and then i can download the csv of their responses group them by if they were right or wrong and then scroll through them to get a sense of like what the biggest mistakes were in people's thinking it makes it super easy to do in numbers and with excel there's like a lot more fiddling i have to do to make it work yeah i'm with you and i just like the way numbers looks i mean i i almost never use excel unless i'm forced to by someone i'm working with there you go just the whole idea of cells into infinity. I don't know why that was a good idea and why it still <laughs> is a good idea. In case you need 37,000 columns, they have you covered. <laughs> just even like this, the fact that I can have multiple tables in a single sheet yeah. and they have different information is so nice to me. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad that I'm talking to y'all because I think my colleagues are much less sold on numbers as, as a solution. Yeah, I feel like out of the three, that's the one that people sort of look at with the most side eye. But yep. <laughs> uh, it, it is fantastic. I mean, FM mostly runs on Google Docs and Google Sheets, but there are some things we do that we just keep in a numbers file in Dropbox because of the exact thing you just said, multiple 
tables in a document. And you can kind of, I guess you can kind of fake that in Google Sheets or Excel where you just sort of separate them, but it's not the same. And once you get used to working that way, it's hard to go back. Totally. And I I am probably one of the few users of numbers is real-time collaboration stuff. I know, Stephen, I remember early on, you all made like a thing where you had like a thousand people in a pages doc or something yeah, like that. Yeah, we opened a, a pages document on the on iCloud.com just to the public. And boy, did it fall <laughs> apart quickly. <laughs> yeah, so this is like, I have my teaching team on the same numbers sheet. There are like five of us and they're all writing notes as class continues of like stuff going well or suggestions or whatever. And just having that in a single... You know, you could do that probably much nicer in a Google uh, uh, sheet or rather it, w- it would work much smoother. But then at the end of the day, I have this nice numbers sheet with all that stuff on it and I can format it the way I like. So the, the, the collaboration stuff isn't great, but it's close enough that I could then continue to use numbers the way yeah. I want to. And I haven't tried the collaboration stuff uh, in a long time, but uh, give listeners a little bit of a feel for how you set that up and how you go about it. I mean, we all know with Google Docs, you just go to a URL, but what's that like in iWork these days? Yeah, so the the main way I do it is similar to Google Docs, which is that you you just generate a link. It's it, the numbers uh, sheet has to be somewhere in iCloud, and then you press the collaborate button. You change it to anyone with the link can edit, and you copy the link just like you do in Google Sheets, and then you share that, and then people can pop in. They have to like name themselves, and then they can, you know, they can use the web interface if they use a PC or it opens within iWork, like numbers on their Mac or on their iPad or iPhone, and they can just, you know, their little cursors show up just like it does on Google, um, which is quite nice. And now, since iCloud Drive added folder sharing, if you're sharing a folder with someone, any iWork document of any kind that you have in there, be it Keynote or Numbers or whatever, you can now simultaneously open and work on. So anything in a shared Google and a shared iCloud Drive folder has that feature attached to it. Yeah, I know they did that with Apple Notes uh, several or yep. a couple of years ago, and that, that was a big, big deal in my household. So these, so your teaching team is using the native iWork apps. They're not stuck out in the web doing it on iCloud.com necessarily. That's right. So I think one of them is a PC user, so they use the the browser, and everyone else is just opening numbers on their Macs or iPads. That's pretty cool. Well, it definitely looks nicer than the Google stuff. Um, oh yeah, God. But, but I mean, putting a thousand people on it wasn't really a very fair test. Well, <laughs> honestly, uh, you know. we, well, we did it with a, a Google document too, and Google fell down as well, but iCloud fell down way faster. Yeah, and then you're using Pages as well. I mean, what what kind of stuff are you doing in Pages? So I have, I teach rather than with slides, I teach with a handout and I, all the students have the handout. So I make my handouts in pages. Um, It just makes them much nicer formatted. It's much less frustrating for me to use than word where like the styles are just constantly changing for reasons you can't understand. It, It just like works much more smoothly for me. The only downside is in the pandemic, I wanted everyone to have access to the, the actual file instead of just a PDF if they wanted to type on it. And a lot of them don't use Apple uh, Apple devices. Well, some of them don't use Apple devices. So I exported to Word. And the export to Word is still pretty solid. But I like to use like pretty cool groupings of, you know, like I'm, I make fancy looking handouts and sometimes they would break. Um, so that still is a problem. Yeah, I, I work with both. And, and also I have some clients that do their stuff in Google Docs. It's just, you know, wherever I need to go, I go. But I honestly... Um, I think I still prefer pages. There's a few features, and we don't need to go into it. There's a few features that work better in Word and a few features that work better in pages. But, 
you know, I am a guy who likes a good experience and, and pages yep. delivers that and word often does not. And I think if you're using an iPad, word is just not nearly up to, up to snuff as compared to pages. Yeah. Although I, I will say in Microsoft's favor, they've come a long way with the office suite on iPad. I mean, it, you sure. can do almost everything now. Uh, I still, uh, there's like style edits and a couple things that you have to have a Mac for, but I mean, let's just say Microsoft support of the iPad is much better than Google's. That is absolutely for sure. I'm kind of, I mean, I was kind of bummed when Safari just started running Google stuff natively. Cause I was like, Google's just going to give up. But then I realized that I feel like they kind of gave up a long time yeah. ago. So yeah, it's already so. given up. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe somebody, you know, maybe, you know, I'm thinking maybe somebody in Google management had a, you know, they like were trying to read their iPad in bed and it like fell and like broke their nose or something. And they just decided that's it with the iPad. No more. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, well, Teddy, uh, you know, every time you come on the show, you just have so much to share. I know we even had stuff in the outline we couldn't get to today, but I do appreciate you coming in. Lots of great tips today, whether you're zooming for teaching or work or whatever. I think, um, uh, you've got some great tips and apps here. I think it'll help people out. And I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you're using contextual computing. I feel like it's a, it's the way to go the red string and all. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, well, first of all, for the opportunity to be here, but also for all your, all your posts and stuff about contextual computing have been very, uh, important for me. Um, and I hope, I hope listeners find this stuff helpful. You can definitely reach out to me on Twitter. If you want to talk about any of these things, I'm Ted Svo. Or I also have a Tedsfo underscore tech account so that my followers don't have to see me get into like really in-depth exchanges about specific technological things. Either of them would work for me. Yeah, sounds good. Um, and that's T-E-D-S-V-O? That's right. V like Victor, Tedsfo. You have a blog too, right? Yeah, so teddysferonos.com. I blogged a bunch early pandemic with a bunch of tips and stuff about different things related to teaching online. So yeah, definitely check that out as well. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for coming, Teddy. Thanks to you both. Well, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. You can download the shows there, see the show notes. We also have a newsletter you can sign up for at the website if you want, and that'll deliver to your mailbox every Sunday the show notes and links for every week. So go check that out. Uh, anything exciting going on on your end these days, Stephen? Uh, I've got a bright orange iMac to talk about so i'm going to be oh uh, warming up the five Hill youtube channel and doing some stuff with that so i'm excited to uh dive into the m1 the newest m1 yeah you know and if you can get that arm off it it can double as a boogie board so you can maybe <laughs> do an extra video on that <laughs> thanks to our sponsors one password squarespace and make do we'll see you next week